Dr. John McKay. I have started uh, Synergistic Technologies Associates and more recently the Dr. John McKay Institute of Extraction Technology and focused on, on education and on the cannabis as well as other natural products extraction and analytics. everybody this is jason wilson with the curious about cannabis podcast thanks so much for tuning in once again so today i'm delighted to be sitting down with dr john mckay who is an expert in all things extraction science and technology um i think this would be a great way to kick off our uh, first podcast episode of 2022 uh super stoked uh thanks so much john for being willing to come on the podcast today oh it's a great pleasure it's always uh good to, to talk about cannabis with a, a fellow extraordinaire on the science side and, and gaining more perspective so for me it's a it's a great time and thank you so much for the invitation yeah absolutely i'm uh, right before we got to recording we realized we had all sorts of connections we didn't know about um my background at the university of mississippi and you've done some work with them too so there's many reasons why i'm really excited to talk to you today one of the first questions i wanted to, to throw out at you that i i usually like to to do is just to understand you know, all of your work lately has been focusing on extraction science and technology with heavy focus on education. So what is it about natural products extraction that uh, you're so passionate about? Where does that passion kind of come from? So I had 29 years at, at Waters Corporation. Within that time period, we did a lot of um, extraction, whether it was pharmaceuticals or whether it was pesticides or whether it was with universities. And one of the things that's, that's always intrigued me is traditional Chinese medicine. Um, we've done a lot of work with that. And when you move through that process and you look at the number of compounds that have made it into the pharmaceutical small molecule, most of those came from natural products. So if you're looking at bark and coming up with aspirin, or if you're looking at uh, most of the other products that, that, that we have, we had the yew tree, which, um, gave us a lot of different, um, anti-cancer compounds and they were just chopping down new trees and so between that time they started to find a synthetic root and the other part of that is is the complexity of the plants and then finding out the pharmaceutically valid ones as well as the fact of taking out the ones that that might do you harm uh, there's a good reason why we're not gnawing on grass and gnawing on bark because we're able to find some of the active ingredients but at the same time in the United States, I, uh, I'm always um, amused at the following. That is, for some reason, the United States believes that we've discovered all natural products and they just have to go back to, they might want to go back and look at uh, Indian, the Indian culture, as well as the Chinese culture, because it's, it's been a few years that they've been doing that. Yeah, just, just a few. Not to mention the Egyptians. Not, not to mention the Egyptians. So that's, and it's an exciting part of finding something that is actively pharmaceutically active um, from a natural product. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. I'm right there with you. Natural products in general fascinate me. And something that I try to impart on people is, um, you know, we've actually studied very few plants 
you know, as far as plants that exist or have existed, um, the ones that we've really studied closely, it's a small percent. I think sometimes it gets esti estimated between like five and 10%, 6% is often a number that's thrown around, um, but it's it's relatively small. So it's, it is important to um, accept a little bit of humility on our part, especially as scientists uh, that are navigating some of the space that there there is a lot we don't know and um yeah i'm excited for you to bring up things like ayurvedic medicine and all these other things that uh there's still just tons and tons to learn from and we don't even understand why some of the plants and concoctions and things that have been used for thousands of years why they have worked um and so that's really where some of your expertise comes in of like how do we separate the components of these things how do we analyze them how do we know that our data is even you know good and accurate um and so i don't know natural products is exciting to me because it's just such a huge frontier um and we're really just getting started though i i definitely recognize what you say about the united states kind of hubris there of thinking that we've already kind of tapped everything and uh it's also interesting like the way that our drug approval processes work, there's not a lot of room for unknown variables, which makes medicinal plant uh, research and stuff a little more challenging to get into. Pharmacognosy. Yes, pharmacognosy. Is, is the original part that, that people were looking at. So pharmacognosy is the study of, of the natural plants and using them for medicinal purposes. We've also called it ethnobotany, but it wasn't until the late 30s that we started to become more enamored with small molecule products. And that's where the pharmacognosy schools um, slowly became pharmacology schools. And if you look at the uh, uh, American Herbal uh, Products Society and, and all the different things that they're doing, that's where I would have people drive towards that are starting to look at that, the um, Herbigram. I think it's the Herbigram that's, that's done out of Texas by a Mark. I can't remember Mark's last name. But it, that comes out every single uh, month and it's got, you know, it's got the plant of the month and all the different parts that are doing, that are doing different um, metabolism. The, the second part of the equation is that's the plant. The first part of the equation is finding the receptors inside our body that are accepting them and that are using uh, compounds that our body makes, and now we're making compounds, we're bringing in compounds from the outside that are similar to them. So if you look at a receptor site, for example, the we call them endocannabinoids because they couldn't come up with anything more similar, but they're actually just <laughs> molecules that, that actually go to a locking key of a receptor that's inside our body it fits inside that. It now goes off and makes other secondary and ter tertiary metabolites and goes through and then becomes anti-inflammatory or goes through the serotonin side or uh, um, and other factors. So once we once we find out that we have something, now we have to go dig and see why is it making an impact. And that's exactly where the CB1 now called and CB2 sites were first found. But now they're finding there's more variations of the CB1. Now there's more variations of the CB2, but those were only in the uh, the early 90s that they started to find those. They didn't even know why we had an effect. And I think that that's even more exciting for the biochemists and all the exploration that they can do now, because now they're finding out where their receptor sites and even 
I'm on a tangent. I'm on a roll now. Sorry. No, it's great. No, go for so, it. So then you have psilocybin. Yep. And now they're just barely finding out where the receptor sites are, the psilocybin or DMT, because they look like exactly like not. They look similar to serotonin. So now they're going into the same brain sites. And at what point in time do you move the psilocybin from being something that's um, sub um, uh, dosage to a, a dosage that's uh, variable or, or viable and then to a dosage that's, that's too much? Yep. And those are the things that now become possible. So is psilocybin working as, as on its own or does it need uh -huh. synergistic effects of other compounds that are still within a mushroom and remembering there's probably 200 types of mushrooms that have psilocybin so everyone's thinking that there's so it's a, it's i think it's a, such an exciting time for the young chemists like yourself and and being able to a whole another generation that's back to pharmacognosy i yes i totally agree and i'm so glad you brought up the receptor subvariant issue because i think that's something that gets very underappreciated and I think like so far, you know, talking about psilocybin and DMT, I think we're aware of like 14 subvariants of serotonin receptors. And, and you start talking about cannabinoid receptors and yeah, there are subvariants of those. There are also these versions of CB1 receptors we find on mitochondria and stuff. And so it's not just as simple as CB1, CB2 or serotonin receptors. You know, there's just all of, these are proteins. I mean, we're talking about things that you know, there could be tiny little tweaks and changes in the body. You know, it it tends to explore all sorts of pathways for building things and doing things. And so it's not surprising to find subvariants of all of these things that we kind of originally view and simplify. But then as uh, technologies improve or our the questions we ask improve, and then we start to see that, you know, there's a lot more complexity there that we hadn't take into account um so i'm right there with you yes this is all right up my alley very very exciting stuff and hopefully people listening um recognize that too because i think um especially as these industries are getting going and you've got a lot of marketing language around cannabis around psychedelics it seems like we have all of this stuff figured out you know and we're ready to go and um it's just a matter of you know within the cannabis space um, there's kind of this assumption that like all we need to really do is just figure out our custom terpene blends and then we've got our perfect, <laughs> you know, cannabis products or, you know, and it's like, no, there's, there's so much more going on here. And even when you do get that formulation piece figured out, like you said, there's still the human body element to figure out. Um, it's never just, just one side. Um, so yeah, I, I agree. There's a lot to appreciate there. And how did you find yourself kind of getting wrapped up in this world of natural products uh, and, and extraction and all that sort of stuff? You said you worked for Waters for you know almost 30 years. Um, how did that come about? So I, I would say that it, um, more recently, the entire activity started from the general um, extraction. So extraction is even from a sample. So you're trying to take a sample and you're just extracting the smallest amount to see what are the components in there? And that's mass spectrometry, that's liquid chromatography, that's um, a lot of different ways of, of looking at the chiral compound. So on my side, it was the intellectual side and the lab guys really did all the work and finding out the different ways of, of looking at mass spectrometry. So every time mass spectrometry got better and better, every time you get a tenfold de 
tenfold increase in sensitivity, you get 10 times more compounds. That's a rule of thumb. You go down by 10, you're going to get 10 times more compounds. So now you've looked at something and said, oh, I could see 10. Then you got another order of magnitude. Now you got 100. Now you have another order of magnitude. <laughs> now you got 1,000 compounds. And some of them are chiral. So I got into it from the intellectual side and the marketing side and, and science side. Because um, most people at Waters, were all running, they were all running around with our PhDs. Mm -hmm. We we did science, but we all had our PhDs. And then I moved into the cannabis world around 2012. There was a part of, of Waters that said, go figure out what to do with supercritical. So supercritical could be used for a lot of different things. And so I ran head head into, um, into the cannabis world because that's what they were doing. And at the time, the technology was more simple um, um, uh, extraction methods, I will say. Um, and then I, then I had, I had the benefit of having acquired Thar Analytical, which was a supercritical fluid company. And I had, you know, a lot of different control and such. So I took extractions that were, you know, 24, 18 hours down to 90 minutes. Nice. And suddenly, yeah. and suddenly I realized the power of even in 2012 of the social network. So it went from it went crazy. I, I never had to, I, I never had to market anything. All I had to do was just educate and give seminars on how to use the equipment. And so it was the early days of, 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 it was all THC. And then yeah. from there it became more important. So now today it's now grown to the part of looking at the chiral molecules and, uh, and that becomes more and more important. So that's how I got into it, sort of backed into it. And then I just kept I just kept reading and reading so that I'll, I'll do one more story. And that was in uh, 2013, in late 2013, there was a man, a lawyer at, at a, at a um, conference up in, in outside of Seattle. And he said, if you study for three months, you'll be a well-versed uh, cannabis lawyer. And I thought, I don't want to be a cannabis lawyer. You know, <laughs> it's the old joke of how much, you know, if you have cement that goes up to a lawyer's neck, what do you have? <laughs> not enough cement. And so I, I I wanted to be a scientist. So I started reading every single morning. I said, I'll read for an hour. And so now, now it's grown. It's now 2022. So it's, it's a uh, quick math tells me that's uh, nine years and I still do it today. So I've got papers and papers and papers every day. I'll, I'll read a new paper. I'll read some of my old favorites. And so that's how I'm keeping up with the technology. But as you move towards that technology and as you move towards what's being done across the world, it's extraordinary that we can't have our universities in the United yeah. States. It's illegal. So Spain, Italy, China, um, India, Brazil, Uruguay has done some fabulous work. And so, and now the UK is doing work. And meanwhile, our, our powerhouse universities in, in, um, in the United States, are, are, are pretty much locked out of almost all work. And so that's a, that's a tough go. And so to get to the real answers, like you say, what's the real thing that's happening? And so I, you know, I, I do that. Yeah. That's how, no, I, it's, and that's how I continue. And it's, it's, I share your frustration of like, you know, there's, there's so much, uh, so many questions to be answered and so many resources just sitting there, you know, ready to be used. You know, I think about, you know, so at the University of Mississippi, they have the um, 
Natural Products Research Center there, which is one of the biggest natural products research centers in the country. And all of this technology ready to be used, but they can't do anything. I mean, I spoke to somebody very recently um, about this because Mississippi just legalized medical marijuana. So I reached out to my uh, friends at Ole Miss and it's like, all right, is this the time to go? You know, is this happening? And they're like, ah, no. And like the NIDA guys are like, we can't really touch any of it. And uh, folks in the pharmacy department are trying to figure out how to begin to touch it. But it's, you know, there's so much money wrapped up in it as far as federal grants and, uh, you know, that sort of stuff that they're still scared Mm -hmm. to risk it. And it's a shame because there's just so many universities around the United States that uh, they would love to do it. Like, you know, the, the people that are running these labs, like they're open to it. I've had tons of positive conversations with folks that would love to do it. Um, but they're just scared, you know, of risking, you know, losing that federal money and, and other opportunities and things. And there's still a taboo, too. Um, there's, yeah. there's still a, a, a stigma there uh, to overcome as well. Um, so when you look at those two, so the first one is the University of Mississippi is um, is the FDA's official training of natural products that is their center of excellence (laughs) and yet they can't do this natural product and (laughs) and then you have other universities across the united states i mean oregon state yeah yeah stakes i mean a fabulous school you've got you've got um washington state out in the middle of nowhere um i forgot the name of the pullman washington you've got cornell you've got university of vermont you've got You've got uh, UC uh, Sacramento. You got I, there's just so many of them out there, and I would say that uh, that's the hard part. The second part is, I mean, I I know that Green Flower is doing some good work and connecting with different universities to help it, but if you read their program, still that's still outside the work. Yep. I'm I've managed to to uh, to get a position at the California State University Bakersfield, where I'm actually teaching biochemistry this this semester to juniors and seniors. I actually have a faculty nice, position, nice. an in, instructor position and teaching biochemistry, but it's, you have to know the amino acids before you can know how they're growing into proteins. And you have to know the first 20, but those aren't the only ones. There's hundreds of amino acids. And then how do they fit into a protein? And psilocybin affects lysine yeah. through the yeah. serotonin. Yeah. And so you've got to know lysine before you can and and where does histamine come and where does histine come from and and glutamate you have all these things and so those young minds are are ready to explode and all we need is some some opportunities for them to get into graduate school for them to have professors that can that know how to do natural products but they need they need the young minds to bring us forward yeah and i get so excited thinking about you know folks that are undergraduates or graduates right now, the opportunities that they will have that even, I mean, I'm still fairly young and I mean, I still come from the prohibition era, you know, world when I was in school and everything, I mean, there was no opportunity to work with cannabis at all, not even him for, you know, anything. And that's why one reason why the only reason I got the opportunities I had is because I found myself in Oregon at the right time. And, you know, and so the medical program was going and then moving into legalization and cannabis testing, you know, started to become, you know, required. People started 
and needing those types of services. But um, now, even just a short time later, these students have amazing opportunities, not just with cannabis, but like you're saying, with the, the boom of, of psychedelic therapies and and other things that are on the horizon. It's just baffling to me to think about what's going to come out of, you know, this next uh, series of of classes of scientists that are going to be graduating out. They're going to do amazing things and push uh, boundaries, you know, far beyond um, what we've seen just by having even the slightest bit of access and, and opportunity to start to study these things in a formal way. Um, it's going to be really cool. It is. I think when you look at some of the work of um, Alexandros uh, Macrionis out of Northeastern, he was at uh, UConn before. So when you look at the different synthetic molecules that have to be made from the original one to be able to add on a group so it goes to the right part of the body. You've got John Hoffman out of uh, Clemson. He's now retired. You've got um, um, Hebrew University. So yeah. when you see HU or you see AM or you see JH, those are those are the original real pioneers that were starting to look for what do you have the activity and where does it go? And so, um, Shulam, um, you know, more recently looking at what's the effect of where you put a methoxy group to be able to make CBG, C CBDA more um, amenable to staying up within the body. You have to be able to have both the carboxylic group to do that. And so those are the things that are moving forward. That doesn't mean that the cannabis goes away as a natural product on its own. So you have behind the, the, the shelf at the pharmaceutical and you have the one in front where you can use it, you know, as, as a total product itself. It doesn't, they're not mutually exclusive. And I think that sometimes people get all wound up on, oh, it's pharmaceutical. But I know that there's lobbyists. I, I'm not. I'm not silly. I'm not. I'm not. You know, Pollyanna or, or. Um, but I do know that the Willy Wonka is is probably the right is the right analogy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I totally agree. Especially in the in the cannabis space, particularly, there's a big sensitivity to this concept of big pharma and the pharmaceutical industry and everything and i've always had a weird i've always fallen in a weird space with that because you know coming from the university of mississippi and i had a, had a lot of exposure to that world um just as a young person and being friends with folks in the fda and usda and, mm -hmm. and the boy waller complex and stuff and so i came out of it like not really seeing them exclusive and seeing the opportunities and you know for instance like what you're talking about of looking at methoxy groups and how to protect CBDA, you know, a lot of people don't appreciate that carboxylic acid compounds, no matter what they are, I mean, they're so sensitive. And so being able to use them as a drug is very hard. And so finding ways to protect those things so that that compound can get to where it needs to in the body before, you know, that methoxy groups comes off or something so that then you've got CBDA ready to, you know, be there, you know, whatever they, they have to do. Um, it's a challenging endeavor and so developing those types of of drugs is exciting to me uh to see uh i think el soli just recently came out with like thc eye drops um you know there's like all sorts of different things in development and i i understand you know folks concern of you know is is the development of cannabinoid pharmaceuticals going to mean that there's an argument that people shouldn't have herbal cannabis and 
you know, I don't, I don't really see the future going that way. I think states are going to end up handling it, you know, on a case by case basis, just like a lot of other things. And they're going to have pharmaceuticals, which are also going to end up having access to herbal cannabis. I mean, I tell people if Mississippi of all places can legalize medical marijuana in the way that they have, like there is hope <laughs> for the future. I never thought I would so see it happen in my lifetime here. The, the key even with the eye, the pressure mm -hmm. of the eye, it was shown early, early on that um, that the THC could help with the pressure. So that's, a, that's an incredibly important in medical work that's been done for a couple of decades in different companies coming out and trying to, to have the right formulation in the right way to be able to place it through glaucoma. I mean, that is it. If you have it in with glaucoma and you're able to release that pressure, you're able to see again. You're able to be, I mean, think of the phenomenon of that. And it's not just, you know, it's not, it, that's incredibly exciting work that that's an entirely different disease state that people haven't been able to, to look at, whether it's a burn on, on your hand yeah. and you have the right formulation that allows it to be healed faster and better without a scar. I mean, that's, I mean, I certainly could have used that a few times by touching the ear. Right, me too. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't the most obedient child on the planet. Look, you burnt. Ouch. Oh. Hey, Ouch. <laughs> that's, that's how we learn, right? <laughs> we experiment, get hurt a few times. And, uh... <laughs> Sometimes. <laughs> yeah. I got, I've I got almost a 68. I'm almost 68. I have to get there first. Yeah. <laughs> And there's a lot of stoves for me to hit in between now and June. <laughs> right, yeah. A lot of opportunities along I the have way. A lot of opportunities. To <laughs> and coming back around to extraction, <laughs> yeah. Uh, what would you say are some of, in case people are listening that are, you know, a little newer to some of these concepts, yeah. what would you say are some of the core concepts around natural products extraction that folks should really clue into okay so so my very first thing that that seems to to connect with people is it's formulation centric mm -hmm. you have to know what you're making and where that is and now you you back up from that to the ingredients that have to provide you that in a formulation and then you back up from that of how you would extract that provides you those ingredients and then you you can go all the way back to the to the plant itself. So if you're trying to make something that has a certain formulation, so I I realize it's crazy and it's exactly like a cannabis, but there's and that is coffee. Yeah, yeah. So when you make coffee, you've decided that you need coffee in the morning. Most people say that they do that and they say, Well, I'm just getting the caffeine. Well, if you're just getting the caffeine, take no dose. There's simpler <laughs> ways to take caffeine. And it probably goes into your body faster. But most people, like myself, I can't do chemistry unless I have burnt beans on my breath. <laughs> so what I do is I decide that I'm going to have a coffee and I want these flavors. And I want, so I, I grind up the beans, same as you do with cannabis. You take a bean, you grind it up, and then you put it into a, a container of some sort. And then it's a French press or whether it's a, you know, a coffee maker itself or whether you're making you know, uh, an espresso, each one of those is different. 
And then from there, you decide what you're using for a solvent. So I'm always amused by people saying, well, this is the only solvent you can use. No, it's, it's <laughs> what it is. It's still a solvent. And so when you take that process, I can use acetone. Acetone does a great job on coffee beans. It also does a great job on cannabis. And so does ethanol, depending on the temperature of the ethanol. So does so many of the other factors. So if I'm making coffee in the morning, I typically choose the solvent that's allowing me to do that. So I'll use water because if I use ethanol, I, I'm awake, but the first <laughs> three hours isn't going to be that productive. So I'm not going to use ethanol. And then when people say, well, I want to have cold brew coffee. Well, then you've got to have cold brew coffee. You have to, it's at a different temperature, just like the ethanol. And so you're going to have to have 12 hours for it to make cold brew. And that's why we use hot water. And, and that's the whole process. So now you've chosen your solvent, you've chosen the temperature. So when people ask me about extraction, the number one thing is what, what are you trying to make or what is what ingredients do you need that you're going to buy? And then you ask the people, how did they make it? And you really need to do due diligence. You're still responsible. If you're not making it yourself, you're still responsible for the person who made it. I've got some really good stuff, man. This is just the best stuff in the world. Can I see your COA? No, man, because this is really, really good. No. <laughs> you know, trust in God, yes. everyone else bring data. <laughs> yep, exactly. With every batch. And so, every batch. Yeah, yeah. None of this like using one test result for right. infinite batches into the future. <laughs> and also, when, when you're talking about that, I, I also believe that you have the right testing. So, you know, as much as I can make as enemies as punch, Delta 8, Delta 10 that are coming from CBD, there's other ways of doing this synthetic. So it's not coming from the natural plant. But you can, the best way to make Delta 8 is to, is to have Delta 9 from the plant because it has one enantiomer. The plant makes one enantiomer. When you go to G and C, there's a reason why you buy l amino acid it's that's the one that the body uses and so the best way to do testing is nmr but there's very few people doing nmr testing but there was a great paper out of the university of um, rochester um a quick release paper on on the nmr and they tested all the different groups and they could see with nmr you can't lie there's the nmr sees everything and so as we move forward the best extraction um is starting out with a formulation centric. I'll do one more, and that is best. So I, I I took best, and I took B, and B is the is the botanical integrity. You want to be able to have what you want from that plant. It doesn't care. I don't care what the plant is. And E is for extraction efficacy. Number one is efficacy. You want to make sure that what you have isn't killing somebody. And then you have economy and then you have efficiency because you want to stay in business to be able to provide that patient constant um, material. S is for safety of everyone in the business, all the way from the from the plant, all the way through the workers, all the way through to the final formulation. And T is for testing with modern technology. First of all, I know this isn't, a, a, Jason, it's not going to be news to you, but I don't know. Good is not a number. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> so I, I start off with best. And and when I do the best, I'm really focused on any botanical at all. And this is every I I I I've done all different types of extraction, whether it's called solventless or whether it's called solvent, different media, supercritical, subcritical water. It's some when people hear supercritical, they always think CO2. Well there's 
I'm <laughs> there's water and yep. the same thing with propane, propane and slash butane. You can have mixtures of those. Um, there's so much work that's out there that if you look at the entire botanical world and you read all of those different processes, hydro distillation it doesn't yeah. it doesn't matter you're getting what you want so i realize i have now not answered your question in just less than five minutes <laughs> no that's good you uh you got at the question which is really the best we can do anyway <laughs> and you know uh this hits on so many points i mean one something that weighs on my mind heavily which is the integrity of cannabis testing data floating around in the industry because like you said i mean there's there's all of these parts that the producer can tend to um but then there's also you have to be able to rely on the integrity of the data that you're getting back yeah. and i've had a, a big concern for a, a long time because i've i come from that world i left the cannabis testing world in 2017 or 18 or so um because it started to overwhelm me and i got really burnt out um but i've i've seen i'm actually giving a seminar on this uh is that tomorrow that is tomorrow Thursday. Uh, um, <laughs> no, it's not. <laughs> What's today? Today Tuesday. In two days. So tomorrow, tomorrow would not be Thursday on this planet. Yeah, not on this planet. Uh, not in this country. Uh, so in two days, I give a talk all about the ways that cannabis lab testing can go awry, how yes. quality systems in in cannabis testing labs should function, what yes. the goal of trying to help producers evaluate labs and find the good ones and suss out the bad. There are a lot of ways for data realization to go wrong, and there are a lot of market forces out there incentivizing cannabis testing labs to encourage the data to lead in a certain way, especially around cannabinoid and terpene data. Um, usually the, the kind of like contaminant side is pretty good, but cannabinoids and terpenes, there's a lot of suspect data out there. And so... Um, you know, I think in, in hearing you talk about this, I just want to highlight if there are extractors out there that are listening to this, you know, there's all of your the production side, but you also have to get educated on the testing side to be able to critically evaluate your, you know, who's supplying you that data, the test results that you're that you're seeing and knowing, you know, because that influences the formulation and everything else. And so if you're getting bad data, you know, that can waste so much time and energy and resources and unfortunately labs are incentivized to boost cannabinoid numbers because they think that's what clients want clients ask for it clients lab shop and you know uh labs that tend to have lower cannabinoid numbers tend to get lower client less clients um and so i've seen some crazy things you know 40 plus percent thc numbers on herbal cannabis that i tell people i'm like do you literally see you know, a THC dripping off of the plant because I mean that's what you're getting close to. Um, yes. <laughs> so it's just it's just a bizarre situation. So you know, I hope to say I've seen these uh, smaller NMR systems that are starting to get more popular and more affordable, and I hope to see a future where cannabis testing labs can start to engage NMR a lot more. I guess that's where I'm trying to get around to with with. Uh, my ramble is hearing you bring up NMR is so important because, you know, people are kind of exposed to HPLC and, um, you know, a little bit, they know sometimes a little bit about mass spec and everything. Um, but if labs can be able to affordably engage NMR a little more, 
um, like you said, it's hard to hide things from NMR when you can actually see the breakdown of of atoms that are there and their arrangements and all these things. And then also something you mentioned way back that I want to highlight, chirality and these enantiomers, you know, when we talk about terpene testing, um, this is such a tremendous issue that so many uh, labs are unable to differentiate between the enantiomers of all of these different terpene, terpenoids. Um, and so I, I try to caution people to lean too much on terpene data because, you know, with the data we're going to have five years, 10 years from now, is going to be very different than, than what we've had so far. And like when people say there's limonene in here, it's like, well, which one? Which one? <laughs> <laughs> which one? Because I can tell a synthetic limonene versus natural. If you have a natural limonene, you are going to have D and L. Right. Out of orange juice, people just have to look up the literature. As I always say, you don't have to do a lot of research. 95% of the research can be done if you can read. And so, <laughs> and there's paper that's done there. So there was a great paper, to your point, even with the cannabinoid. So CBCA yeah. has been shown that it will, after extracted with improper post-analysis, the double bond will open up. Compound will flip over, and now you have a racemic mixture of CBCA. So it comes out as one specific enantiomer. That's what the plant makes through the enzyme called CBCA synthase. It makes one. And what happens is, is if people do that and then they heat it up, it will turn into a racemic mixture. So the example of that is ibuprofen. Mm, so when yeah. ibuprofen you're taking 200 milligrams of ibuprofen, but you're actually taking 400 milligrams of ibuprofen because one of the, one of the mixtures on the ibuprofen is, has no effect. And so the FDA has said, it's got no effect. Just keep on making it. You don't have to purify it. And so on that side, but that's what has not been done on the cannabis, on, uh, on cannabis and cannabinoids. Is it Delta eight, from delta nine will make one specific enantiomer. And so I actually, before we left, um, Andy Alb and myself, Catherine Lawford, and there was someone else on that patent, which I've forgotten her name. And, um, but we, we separated, you know, um, the two enantiomers of, two of the enantiomers of delta eight and two of the enantiomers of delta nine. And so you go through those and you can clearly see that there's a racemic mixture and one has, you know, has not been reported as far as having any any effect on it. In fact, when people go back to it and say, oh, well, we studied this in 72. No, the study in 72 <laughs> was done on synthetic, one specific enantiomer. And and what's happening now is there's four. There, there are four possible because you have two chiral centers. So for a chemist, we look at that and say, okay, two chiral centers, there has to be four. And everyone looks at us like we've discovered magic and we just go, well, <laughs> Not really. It's just it's just a factorial. And we, Logic. Just, <laughs> we can count them. <laughs> and and it's not transparency on on the rest of the planet. It's just a transparency of listen to the people who understand that. I I am not a doctor. I'm not an MD. I am a doctor. I'm not an MD. I I couldn't set your leg, nor could I be responsible for for poking out your blister. I should not be near your body. But I do know chemistry enough to know 
what you know what what's the possibility so everyone should be in their in their lane and there was a great talk by Mashula um where he spoke and um and his biggest thing was collaboration he says i am just an organic chemist i'm just a chemist and i collaborate with people that know their specialty i provide them they don't know what they don't know my side of the world so the more people i can get in the room that have a different part of the elephant that they're holding will allow me to solve i don't know what allows me to solve on the elephant analogy that one went awry but the <laughs> <laughs> it does allow me to to know that this is an elephant and it's a bigger problem than just one thing. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, that's, you know, that's become my whole world, really um, connecting with people that know all of the things I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so that I can start to try to understand the big picture. Um, well, you, have a lot, you have a lot fewer people. I have a lot more people that I have to bring into the room. I mean, mine has to look like some sort of movie theater for me to be an expert. <laughs> I I have to say I love your uh your your delivery and and perspective on all of this. You and I laugh uh about all of this in a very similar way, which I really appreciate. Um and I think that makes uh that sets you up to be a good educator and I can see why you um have such a a draw towards teaching people and sharing yeah. Um, all this information because you're a lifelong learner yeah and so i think that's that's a big key um for a lot of educators and i you mentioned you know that you try to you know read in the morning i'll tell people that are listening like check out john's uh, linkedin because usually you share yeah. you know what article you're thinking about um and i always i usually don't i'm usually too busy to like comment and stuff but i do see those i do see them and i'm like oh yeah i remember that paper or like oh yeah i need to go back and, and check that one out um, and so I am there hovering in the darkness, watching <laughs> and seeing those posts and everything. Um, and it's, it, I really, really appreciate it. And that brings me back around to, you know, you've, you've put together your own, um, kind of like a learning Institute to try to teach people, not just about cannabis extraction, but I mean, it's really natural products extraction yeah. broadly. And the focus has been on cannabis and has been on mushrooms and things, but, um, and once again, another reason why I've really wanted to connect with you is because you're really into natural products broadly and yeah. cannabis and mushrooms are, you know, kind of the exciting things that are in our our uh, our eyesight right now. But um, how has that been going for you? And what are some things that you've been learning from, you know, teaching at these conferences and things? I've noticed that you like to do hands on workshops, which is something that I really love to do too. actually get people working with technology, getting, you know, trying to actually do demonstrations so that things click better uh so what's that experience been like you know really getting out there and and trying to share all of this passion and and interest with other people that are really you know some of them are probably coming from companies where they're trying to apply this in a very serious way and other people kind of just starting to to think about it but um what's your experience been with all of that so i think i think sometimes um people are uh resident to to talk to me because they'll, they'll think oh my gosh he's you know he's doing all this stuff so what i do is i've so my experience has been that i keep the classes small yes. so less than 10 people and yep. therefore i know everyone after the first few bits so of anyone that comes to my class i typically within at least the first 30 to 45 minutes i make the whole class have a common enemy me <laughs> 
<laughs> so they they bond together in a, in a way that's just so fun. I watched them bond together, and my first forty minutes is is M and M's, and the things I do with M and M's are 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 terrible, and I do things with puzzles which are even more demonic, and so. <laughs> After the first forty to forty-five minutes, they they now realize that that I am the enemy, and at the same time approachable. And so I'm making sure that I have less than ten people, so that I can morph and pivot to whatever their needs are of that class. And they can be very disparate. They can be people that have never done any extraction, and people that have been doing making some really good shit for a long time. And so you go back through and marriage them together, and then bring them scientific facts so that their experiences and what they have seen now has this and usually the light turns on around noon and they're just like <laughs> oh so that's why when i do this i get that and i ask them the next thing and i say so what will you do next to see what else could happen and then they start to think and probably yeah. the worst part is is that i'm a i'm a um highly functioning introvert me too. Yeah. Highly functioning introverts. So the first few times and stuff, they don't want to take breaks. They don't want to go for lunch and they want to stay late. And and that's not good for an introvert. <laughs> so on my side, I, you know, I, I give them a break at 10. I says, you got to get, get out of your seat, move blood from your butt to the rest of your body. And so that gets them moving. And you know what happens? They talk to each other. Yes. And then they, they become bonded to each other. So there's a couple of things that I like on the, how's it going? It's going very, very well. And except, you know, how, how many can you do and how do you get people in? I'm currently charging $710, which is probably costing me 900 to do, but $710 to take. Because they went right there with you. Yeah. Right there with me. So if you take 710, you spell it, you flip it upside down, it spells oil. Yep. <laughs> That's why it's $710. But I, I have... But I also, during that time, I make them make the organic molecule through molecular kits, and they get to take it home. Nice, nice. And so now they see why the molecule does that. Why is the brain, why is this affecting my brain? What receptors does it go into? They don't have to know about every receptor. They only have to know that they got this great big protein or enzyme that's going to stick itself into. And so how's it going? I, I think it's going well, even if it's one person at a time. And there's a lot of different groups out there that do great teaching and so i'm not saying that i am the only one to do i'm just saying sure i'm one avenue that that you can do and then uh and and i just you know do the geeky science i bring i bring i so as you can well aware i have notebooks upon notebooks upon notebooks in my in my <laughs> office and house and garage and everywhere else yeah i bring a couple of those notebooks and they're just flipping through the the the, the papers and they can, you know, take a picture of them and the open access, I give them access to an open access. Obviously I'm not going to give them open access to one that, you know, $35. But when they, when they do that on the breaks, they're flipping through papers and realize that if I've only brought three notebooks that are, that are really, they're, they're quite large notebooks. I'm not saying it's a little tiny one and they go, yeah. wow, there's all this work. I'm just like, yes. And you, if you can read, you can be one too. Yes. Well, I think that's that's great. Like the uh, your attitude about how accessible science is to anybody. Um, I think that's so so important because I think in our especially 
I don't know, just the way our school systems have evolved and kind of the culture around it. People grow up thinking that science is for the scientists. Yes. Whatever a scientist is, it's for the scientists. <laughs> and, you know, and it's it's there's this gulf in between. And something I'm very passionate about in one reason why I focus on education so much is trying to teach people like, you know, everyone is a scientist. If you are curious and you want to answer yes. a question, you are a scientist. It's just a matter of learning techniques and learning language. There's a lot of vocabulary to learn about, you know, in order to get through some of these papers, but it just starts with a step. You just, and I, you know, I oftentimes in my workshops, so very similarly to you, um, a lot of my students start to really bond together in hating me because I'll tell them like, I know you've maybe never read a research paper before, but you're going to in this class. <laughs> And, you know, if you have to get a dictionary out and look up every other word, it's okay. It's, okay. it's fine. That's, you've got to start somewhere. And you're going to start to see these words be used over and over again in these papers. You'll start to understand. Um, and I'm here. Like, if you have questions, like, I'm here to help you decipher you know, these things. But a lot of this is just learning the language that, you know, these writers of these papers are using because they're highly specialized. And I do think there's an issue in scientific writing that a lot of, I think, um, a lot of people doing publishable research, I think there ought to be like a translated version of every paper that is simplified for kind of a, a layperson with no specialization so they can start to wrap their head around it. But, you know, it is, it's exciting to see how much progress, even, you know, a lot of my workshops run about seven weeks or so, something like that. And seeing the change that can happen in someone who's never engaged in any formal scientific reading or anything, how far they can go in that time, just because they're being challenged and, you know, uh, are in, once again, I do just like you, small groups, less than 10 people, because I want to be, I want to feel that I can give everyone the attention that they need, yeah. you know, to, for it to turn out well. And it's cool. It's cool to see these kind of like families develop in each of these classes and to see people with no scientific background all of a sudden able to talk in a totally different way about these subjects and excited to share that information with the people around them. And when you start to think about how that trickles out in the world, um, it's so fulfilling um, and so exciting. It is, because if you get 10 people and they talk to one more person, that's 20. If they yeah. talk to a couple of people and then, and, and then everything starts to, it's like multi-level marketing for science. It is. It is, it really is for knowledge. It's like how do we how do we get people we need to make a cryptocurrency or some NFTs that that will uh just spread just people engaging in, in scientific reading. Um it, it is. It's it's a funny way to put it, but it, it is. Just thinking about that compounding effect. Um and for me, I'm like I'm happy if just someone walks away excited. Yeah. But they're just excited to read more and learn more. Then as an educator, you know, I don't expect everybody to walk away knowing all of the trivial facts and, yeah. you know, all of these concepts. I just want them to be familiar and comfortable engaging. And um, it's it's really nice to connect with somebody else who's really on that same path, you know, as far as that passion for education. And it seems like you approach uh, some of that very similarly. So I'm going to have to sit in on one of these uh, mm -hmm. one of these classes someday. I'm just now starting to get back out into the world. I've told people I've been a hermit for like 
four years or something now it's like i left the uh the spotlight in the canvas industry quite a while ago and i'm just kind of working in my lab and doing my thing and building my classes and stuff and of course covid hit and now i'm starting to get back out and trying to get back into conferences and stuff um but i'd I'd love to attend one of your classes one day they sound really fun they are fun so i actually had dr jerry king sit in on the last one i was on nice and uh as I tell people, he's the real king of extraction. <laughs> Are not... you the prince? No. <laughs> I guess my class would think prince of darkness. But if I went back through, <laughs> I, uh, I, uh, he's, he's such a, an amazing person that, you know, I, I learned a lot of my stuff by reading his early patents, you know, mm-hmm. before, I even, before I even knew Jerry. And, and uh, you know, we'll probably call each other every couple of weeks. And at least, and sometimes we'll call ourselves, once we get onto a roll, we'll start talking to each other a couple of times a day. So, I mean, he's just an unbelievable resource. And if you go back through and see so much work that was actually done, he actually, um, you know, worked with the original um, people doing supercritical fluid extraction, um, Giddings up in uh, Utah. And uh, it it was never called supercritical. It, it it's rightly should be called dense gas because supercritical yes. sounds like some oh my gosh I'm going to die no you're not <laughs> no you're not it's just another phase in it and so it's exciting and I, I I'm I'm glad that yourself uh, and other young people are are getting involved because you know I'm I like I say I'm getting close to sixty eight and so and Jerry turned eighty this month and he's still wow. he's still rolling along and but a lot of our a lot of the pioneers have passed um and some yeah. have definitely retired and not moved forward and yet they're seeing this resurgent from your generation on supercritical and extraction and then moving it through ultrasonic and microwave assisted there's so many things that are that are being done so I don't want to bore you. So I'll give you two more words before we leave and stuff. So if you take a separation, if you take an extraction, like making coffee, and the first part is the liquid solid interface because you're taking the caffeine and the other wonderful components out of the coffee. And then you have a filter. That's a separation. That's not an extraction. Separation doesn't involve a liquid, liquid solid. So I call that extrapolation. Strapperish. And then I teach my other side where you take and you're and you're taking the ethanol and then you and then you know, material falls out. They call it dewaxing or whatever. And then right, you still, right. you know you still have the same sort of thing. So you can also have an extrapolation. So you can do both sides. You can do an extraction with a separation, or you can do a separation with an extraction in one process. So you can have extrapolation or extrap or or a separation. And this this actually also gets to a topic that before we we sign off, I wanted to make sure to highlight because um, one thing that we we wanted to get into the conversation was uh, hyphenated technologies. Yes. And and you know uh, different technologies coming together to get you to wherever you're yes. you're trying to get to. Yeah. And you know I mentioned an email that in my world, obviously I'm thinking about HPLC mass spec and. All of these different uh, various forms of separation, and then you know um, how you can see what you've separated, basically. Um, but there's so many different forms of hyphenated technology. So, 
um, we might as well spin off on that as our, our last topic here. So when you look at, so it's interesting you bring that up. So the, I was involved early, early on, on liquid chromatography and then doing mass spectrometry. So when I was in grad school, I did, I did separation and then I brought it to a mass spectrometer and I did sublimation. I stuck it on a probe. I shoved it in. I did to the next separation. I did suck it on a probe. I stuck it in. And then what came out of the mass, what came out of the mass spectrometer was thermal paper. And then oh, I ran man. up to the library, wow. did the metastable peaks, counted every single one with a pencil. And then I sat there with a piece of paper wow. and with a pencil. And then because there was no computers, there was nothing that was doing there. You were, and so that's what I did. You can look at my papers that came out of my thesis and uh, dissertation because the PhD so it's a dissertation. But if you go back through, you now, that was done, then it, then it was LC and it moved across a wire and then the wire went into the mass spectrometer. So that's how it started. And then John Finn out of Yale figured out electrospray because his PhD, his work was done with electrospray. So he was electrospraying things like you electrospray paint on a car and that became mass. So LCMS is only since 1998 or so. This is not, this is not really old stuff since forever. So then you look through on the process. And so when you take uh, CO2, which is a nonpolar solvent, and you're trying to get out the terpenes with a single layer the, the best way to do that is to burst open the trichome mm -hmm. and then you're now doing a very fast um, extraction, which is really kind of a separation at that point. And so you have microwave assisted. You burst open the trichomes with microwave. You burst open the trichomes with ultrasonic. You burst open the trichomes with um, electron pulse. You burst open the trichomes with pressing. There's a lot of ways to do that. So that, in a way, is hyphenated. It's just that many people only look at extraction from one part. And so when you reduce the thermodynamics, that's the important part. So that's what you're going to see as you move through the process. You take a nonpolar and you separate it. So that's a hyphenated method. And the same thing is always going to be true to be able to move through a process that you can... So I'll say CO2 again, you can take an extraction of CO2, have it go through a column in line that's doing decolorization, de-wax, right. and, and so now it comes out. So people have taken these one things and they think, oh, it only does this. No, you just, <laughs> you make it a coffee maker, you make an espresso maker. Remember an espresso maker, when it comes down, it has the coffee and it still has one or two bar, three bar of pressure on it because the particle is so fine. And so a, an espresso maker is a hyphenated technology. And and so it's it's an amusement to me. So now I can go into I can go into Walmart and look at hyphenated technology because you can buy you can now buy a coffee maker where you put the coffee in and you say I want it to be dark or I want it to be light. I want and it goes through and then it goes down and then it goes into a, another thing, and then the you know, water comes in at exactly the right temperature, and it goes through, and it and it comes out, and you go, well, that was good. Well, no, that's a hyphenated extraction. Sorry, I, I went on a roll there. No, I totally agree. And you know, like with coffee making, I think of like, okay, you've got percolation, like that's what we would call 
you know, typically if you were doing like a really simple herbal extraction or something, you use a percolation cone and, yes. you know, you're essentially doing percolation. Yes. Uh, but most people don't know what, you know, don't think of it as, as percolation. Uh, there was a very simple experiment I did back in the day that is still trying to become a published paper. I don't, it's in the like ether <laughs> of publication, but it's a very simple paper looking at just differences in um, outcomes between maceration and percolation yes! methods with slight variations of them. And <clears throat> I mean, it's, it's interesting to see, um, you know, what you can just with, you know, I think of it from like a home use kind of situation. Yes. If someone had cannabis at home and wanted to do a very simple home extraction, yes. should they be putting, you know, their cannabis, just macerating it for long periods of time? Or within an hour, can they use a percolation cone and get this, what's essentially the same outcome? Yes. And I don't know if I'm going to spoil anything with my publication at this point. I don't care anymore. But <laughs> percolation works really well if you're doing it at home. You know, if you lightly soak the material and then you percolate it through, it takes about a full hour for, you know, for that to, to happen. If you're, you know, doing kind of a full, um, kind of like mason jar or something, a half mason jar or something like a lot of people might do at home. Yeah. And, uh, and you'll get a very efficient extraction and you don't have to let things sit, you know, in a jar under ethanol for hours and hours and hours or days, you know, or so, some people are like, no, it needs to be two weeks. And it's like, well, I, I I don't know what you want out of the material that you're trying to get with a two week soak, but um, it's just like little, little things like that, that it's, it's cool to see how these concepts can be translated even out of these high tech labs to just the home counter, you know, just people wanting to play with things and, yes. and make their own little uh, tinctures and, and products and stuff. And yeah, I really hope I didn't ruin anything by talking about that, that simple little tiny research project. They always say, oh, don't talk about it. Don't publish it anywhere. But um, yes, like, it's so simple, and I'm like, it, people should know about percolation cones. It's such a simple little thing. Um. <laughs> it's it's and and it's so novel. I mean, I've never seen a, a cowboy movie from the 1930s where they didn't have the coffee. Right. And that's what my father had. He had he had the coffee, and it was it sat on the on the stove, and it did something that they called percolation. <laughs> what a fucking <laughs> <laughs> what a thucket. I also can't imagine what your perspective must have been seeing these analytical technologies evolve like that to where they're at now, where they're so small, so automated, and all of these things, the ionization and all these things happening just in this very kind of secret automated way. It's like Wizard of Oz or something like people are now just getting trained to feed samples into a machine and see what comes out the other end. And I always caution people not to get too comfortable with that level of automation because you should always understand the theory behind it all so that you have some creative power in the lab and especially not to mention if something breaks just to understand why or you know what needs to be done but also just when you run into problems questions you want to answer and you need to tweak things or get creative you need to understand all of these basic components um so i can only imagine just what your perspective must be like seeing it evolve from, you know, those early days of trying to, you know, even just thinking about manually feeding samples into a mass spec, you know, that's something that, uh, and, and manual injections on a, on an LC or a GC. Or an NMR. You, know, you, these you are, got a whole PhD yes. just by doing one single point NMRs, but 
remembering that I was involved with Waters early on with ultra performance liquid chromatography. So Waters developed that and it took us four years to develop it before we introduced it in 2004. And then yeah. people thought the, the first problem that people saw was they said that the organic molecules would be ripped apart by the pressure. And we're just like, <laughs> what? Oh, yeah, the organic molecules will never take that pressure. Really? <laughs> okay. And so right. early on, those were, the, those were the problems that people had. And then, uh, and then we came up with small molecule supercritical fluid chromatography. And same thing happened. Well, the, the column's going to explode out the other side. The other one that they had with ultra-performance LC was they said that, that you would kill people. And I would, I would give seminars and I'd say, this is what's going to happen is if, if you have the, the piece of tubing, it's going to, it's going to be like a Darth Vader with a, with a, with a, with a, with a, uh, <laughs> with a um, you know, saber sword, but a high pressure zoom, zoom, people's arms coming off and legs and eyes being blinded. I says, no, what's going to happen is it's going to go, yep. it's going to leak. But there were so many things in those first two years that were amazing to hear. They did not want to buy it because wow. they were going to they were going to get hurt. It, you know, it's gonna it's gonna be terrible. And and some of it was based on the competition feeding crazy ideas. Sure, right. You know, I would never think that. And then until they had it, and then then everything was okay. But the uh... <laughs> that's the thing. Yeah, we're gonna we're gonna freak people out until we're able to build it, and then then everything's all right because we fixed the problem. Fixed the problem. Now um, you don't have to worry anymore. Don't worry anymore. No one died. <laughs> But you know, that when is you're so funny that, to I mean, about. it's doing, you know, I mean, I've used Everclear for a lot of seminars. Yep. Everclear yep, works same. really well. It turns out it's an organic water, um, you know, mixture. Who would have thought that? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it works really good. It works really well as a gradient. <laughs> yep. Yep. <laughs> you can separate caffeine over and over and over again, or, or alkyl, you know, alkylphenones. Everyone wants their alkylphenones yeah, yeah. separated by everybody, but yeah. But those are the those were the things. But it, but to be honest with you, it was a huge challenge to bring yeah. ultra performance LC with the technology that was already together, because now you really are bringing things into a mass spectrometer. You're bringing yeah. things into evaporative light scattering, UV. It needs, you need to have that flow cell except 15,000 PSI. So we had to reinvent every single detector to be able to adapt to take the power of the resolution that Ultra Performance made. And now it's there. So I will say one more. So in, in the 80s, photodiode array was not around. So I, right. all the original photodiode array work is, is sitting on mine. There was no photodiode arrays. Wow. And so we moved from 35, uh, a suspected use of 35 photodiode arrays to 35 a week. And now it's the only detector that people use because early on they felt that you could not quantitate with it. And we, we solved it. Oh. We solved it. They couldn't quantitate. And now look at it's the, it's the standard, but it was not the standard in 84. It was not the standard yeah. in 84 when I first started with it. <laughs> Wow, that is so fascinating, and I, I honestly just haven't really thought about how new some of those evolutions are, because I, I teach people about, you know, in the 50s is when we, you know, start to see NMR and, and GCs really starting to, you know, get their place, 
uh, in the late 60s, 70s, you see people playing around with what would become HPLC and, you know, the really early stages, bigger columns and, you know, all this sort of stuff. Um, but, yeah, I hadn't really thought about that, all the automation and things that came after all of that. And each of those technological jumps leads to, like you were saying, just in the, the resolution, you know, concept right. of, all, you know, you start to see more molecules. But, you know, every jump of these little technological evolutions, all of a sudden, researchers are able to answer questions they couldn't answer before, before and tackle questions. So just think about where we're headed. My God. I mean, <laughs> like the the level of resolution mm -hmm. we're starting to get with, with equipment these days, you know it's commonly said that cannabis has what, like 500 compounds or something. And, and folks in my circles always laugh about that. And I'm like, Oh yeah, what you can see right now, but you know, like we keep looking, we're going to keep finding more. And if we find thousands of compounds in, you know, corn and oats and things, obviously we're going to find thousands of compounds in cannabis too. Yes. Um, and so, yeah, I guess this all loops around nicely to where we started, <laughs> which is the frontier, the natural products frontier yes. and how, and how technology, you know, enables us to see the frontier and to engage it. Um, and it's exciting time. And it's it's been really exciting for me to be able to talk with somebody who's so intimately tied into um, all of the evolution of these technologies that have that now allow us to see that frontier. So I really appreciate you being willing to spend the time and, and share some laughs. This has been really, really really awesome on my end i've really enjoyed speaking i appreciate with you. it it's been a good time and uh, always always great to have a, a the next generation be getting excited behind because that's that's you know as i say i've 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 stood on the shoulders of giants and a good person that we all that's do. um still out there is is jerry king so if you ever ever have an opportunity with an opening for him he's fascinating he's and the stories he can tell from before me that are amazing. So he started in the in the late fifties, and so yeah. I didn't start. I didn't make my first injection until nineteen seventy two, and so yeah, wow. And yeah. so he's and and during that those fourteen years, a lot happened that Jerry was part of. I I would encourage you know he, he's phenomenal. He's eighty years old, so don't wait too long. Yeah, I, I would love him. to speak to him. I I think it would be amazing. <laughs> <laughs> And as as we wrap up here, I want to make sure folks know um, how can they learn more about the classes that you teach and really anything else you want to share um, with our listeners before we wrap up. I'll give you the floor. Feel free to plug anything and everything you like. So number one is is I really enjoy the uh, um, CBD Expo and some of the things that Mace Media put together because Every time that we're going to, it's always on science. There's not a whole lot of commercial type of things. It's really focused on the science. So if I was to plug anything, it's it's moving towards the Mace Media um, CBD Expos. Um, great panels. People are always learning a lot, and they're they're funny scientific geeks. There's some really good people in there. And then the other one is I have is the uh, Dr. John McKay Institute of Extraction. So we're taking and broadening that out to all natural products, not just cannabis. And so. I think that's at um, extractiontechnology.com. I think that that's a, that's a good one. Easy to remember. It's yeah. easy to remember and it's a hardly self um, awarding. And then, um, and then on the other company, it's a synergistic technologies associates. And so if you type that in, it's easier than, than me saying the, you know, 15 letter um, word for the, 
I just look me up on uh, LinkedIn and you'll and you'll get there. You'll get there easier for all the stuff that I write. Nice, awesome. Well, yeah, everyone listening, definitely uh, go check out all of John's work. He's he's always um, trying to share, and I always appreciate um, you know folks like that, especially that are as knowledgeable as yourself and have experienced as much as you have. Um, that willingness to to continue to share and to communicate with folks and answer questions and everything. Um, yeah, definitely check that out. Like I said, LinkedIn is where I stalk you. So <laughs> I invite other people to stalk you as well on there. Uh, the Prince of Darkness of Extraction. <laughs> and uh, yeah, John, I hope we have a chance to catch up again. I'm hopefully going to try to make it out to some of these conferences and everything. So hopefully we'll cross paths outside of the virtual world um, at some point in the not so distant future. Um, yeah, thanks so much Thank for you. coming on. And thanks everybody for listening. I really appreciate it. It's been a great talk. All right. Cheers. Bye. If you want to learn more about cannabis, check out the Curious About Cannabis book on Amazon.com and other major online book retailers. 